We are continuing with our study through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, today we're looking at 1 Timothy, beginning to look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. We're also going to have some focus on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as well. At this point, I'm planning to take three weeks. Um, couldn't have been longer, but at this point, I'm planning to take three weeks to deal with these verses. We know that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to be the pastor of the church in that city. There were concerns about teachers who were leading the, the people astray. Timothy would need to address these teachers and what they were teaching while also emphasizing the things that needed to be rightly focused on. Paul has made it clear that teaching sound doctrine has to be a priority in local churches. He especially emphasized the need to hold firm to the biblical gospel. In addition to sound doctrine, Paul also has spoken of the need to have a focus on prayer, both in our personal life and in the church as a whole. And the verses we're beginning to look at this morning, Paul gives attention to the roles of Christian men and women in the church. He's going to continue to refer to these things in some manner, in various ways, uh, in other parts of the letter as well. But he actually be, gets started with that in, in this chapter, in chapter 2. So why does Paul feel the need to address this issue? It may be that there were some things that the false teachers were saying that were encouraging the believers to really throw off authority structures that God had established, <clears throat> that they should feel free to pursue whatever course they felt was appropriate for them, regardless of the authority structures that God had placed in their life. That may be another reason or why Paul emphasized his apostolic authority in a way that he never did in the letters at the very, in the very first verse of this letter, to emphasize that issue, that may also be one of the reasons that Paul especially focused on, when he's speaking of prayer, calling the church to pray for kings and those in authority. Those authorities were important. God had given them and has given specific roles to civil magistrates, and as long as they fulfill those roles properly, then believers would have the freedom to live peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity, and the more faithful believers are to do this, the more clear the witness of the gospel is able to be communicated in the community. And of course, so a key part of, uh, of honoring, uh, a key part of this then is honoring uh, those that God has placed in authority over us by praying for them. Well, in the rest then of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul continues to talk about godliness like he spoke about in those earlier verses and about God-ordained authority as he focuses on the roles of Christian men and women in the church. To ensure that Timothy, the Ephesian church, and believers, all believers, understand the biblical foundation for these things, he's going to say, uh, that, that he's going to say, then he, he takes us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All that he says is firmly established by the biblical principles laid out and those first three chapters of the Bible. So as we look at the verse in 1 Timothy 2, we're also going to be looking at, first at Genesis 1 through 3, so you might want to keep a finger in both places once we get there. So let me go ahead and read 1 Timothy 2, 18 to 15, or I'm sorry, 8 to 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women 
to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submission, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. A lot of things we'll end up being talking about through those verses. The most, one of the most basic things that we see in these verses, and it's reiterated in the rest of the letter as well, and really all through the Bible, is that God created man, male and female. Paul starts out by addressing men in verse 8. He begins to address women in verse 9. So there is a foundational belief that God created men as male and female. And we all fit in one of those, one of those two categories. As you know, that basic biblical and biological truth is being strongly challenged in our day today. In fact, if you actually say that you believe there are only two genders, then somebody's probably going to accuse you of hate speech by saying that. Tragically, Satan has brought great confusion on this issue to many people. It's just heartbreaking to see how many young people, especially, have been deceived on this most basic aspect of their identity. So we're going to spend some time in the first three chapters of Genesis to see what God's word has to say about this foundational issue. So our first point, this main point this morning is this. God created man male and female alike yet different. Of course, this assumes first that all this world and everything in it was created by God. Genesis 1.1 begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we start with this basic fact, and that's this. God created all things out of nothing for his own glory. Create all things out of nothing for his own glory. There were no, new, there were no heavens and earth before God created them. Hebrews 11 verse 3 confirms to us that he created all things out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 also affirms that God existed before the heavens and the earth existed. He's eternal, fully independent. He depends on nothing. He depends on no one for his existence. He did not create the world because he was lonely, as you sometimes hear. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are and always have been perfectly fulfilled and happy as the eternal triune God. Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. John, as John Piper says, this means that God has the right and the power to do whatever makes him happy. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. 
God's purposes cannot be frustrated. We resist him all the time. We resist him on a regular basis. But his purposes cannot be frustrated. And all that he does, he does for his own glory. That, of course, includes his purposes in creating the heavens and the earth and all things in them. Men and women, boys and girls, are included, of course, in what God has created. We are all naturally concerned, of course, about our own personal happiness. In order for us to be truly happy ourselves, the focus of life that God, of the life that God has given us is that we would live our life to glorify him. The catechism question says the chief end of man is to glorify God and glorify him forever. That's what we were made for. So what he reveals about himself and about his purposes in his word are going to be of the utmost importance to us in understanding how to glorify him. Genesis 1 speaks of all that God created as he brought the heavens and the earth into existence. Day 1, he separated light from darkness. Day 2, he created the great expanse known as the firmament. On day 3, he created the dry lands and the seas. On day 4, he created the sun, the moon, the stars. On day 5, he created the sea creatures and birds. On day 6, he created the cattle, creeping things, beasts of the field. On day 6, he also created man. So let's turn over now to, I'm going to turn over to Genesis chapter 1. And verse, one, and verse 26 says this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see in this verse our next point. A divine council, a divine council of the triune God preceded the creation of of man, highlighting the profound wisdom of man as male and female. At the beginning of verse 26, for the first time we see these words, then God said, let us make man. Of course, all of creation is done, was done, at the express will of the triune God. But when it comes to the creation of man, we are specifically told and see evidence of a divine counsel of the triune God. Let us make man. So this makes it clear that the creation of man was the highlight of God's creation. It strongly emphasizes just the perfect, infinite wisdom of the triune God. His work of creating men male and female cannot be improved on. Verse 27 makes this same point in a different way. Here's what it says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice that the word create is repeated three times in relation to the creation of man. That's not done for any other aspect of God's creation, only the creation of man. A threefold repetition of a particular word is the highest emphasis that can be given in the Hebrew language. So the, the importance of the fact that God created man male and female could not be emphasized any higher. 
But we live in a day where that truth is widely rejected. It is emphasized for us that each individual is sovereign over themselves in every way. There is a rejection of any outside authority that would tell you something different than what you feel to be true. Every person is encouraged to be true to themselves, to be authentic to whatever feelings are coming up out of you. So this belief has come to be extended to what our gender is as well. A person can be a biological male, but feel that their true self is female or vice versa. There is the feeling that they are actually trapped in their own body because that's what it feels like. So they are encouraged to have surgeries in an attempt to change their outward biological gender. This idea has become so widespread that highly educated people would now say they can't even define what a woman is. This is known officially as gender dysphoria. It's tragic, just tragic, that so many in our day are dealing with these deep inward struggles. And we need to have a genuine concern for those people who are dealing with these really deep-seated, their temptations is what they are, but have a real concern. Having a concern is one thing, but what we cannot do is affirm them and that to continue in their deception. That would not be loving. If you're dealing with these feelings, please talk to somebody about it. Please talk to somebody. And if you're the one they talk to, listen. Listen and try to understand what they're dealing with. Well, Genesis 1 makes it very clear that the creation of man as male and female is the result of God's perfect wisdom. It cannot be changed without sad and serious consequences. Many will know that the Bible affirms male and female, biological gender in that way, but it's dismissed often, sometimes even by those who claim to believe the scriptures. Uh, Vaughn Roberts is a man, I believe he's actually a pastor now, who struggled with this gender dysphoria himself, and he made this comment in a book that he wrote. He said, the distinction between male and female is fundamental in contributing to the picture of the gospel and to the meaning and purpose of life. So we can't simply discredit it can't simply discredit it as the expression of some backward ancient culture. As he said, being male or female is fundamental to the meaning and purpose of life. It's just basic. And the consequences of rejecting this basic truth, I mean, the consequences are destructive. Now, he, as he also mentions, the male and female distinctions are also fundamental to the picture of the gospel, which we'll get to a little later. But our next point, we see that the importance of man is highlighted by the fact that God created man in his image. God created man in his image. We see that stated clearly in Genesis 1.27. And just what an amazing thing to consider that the triune eternal God has created man in his image. There have been multiple attempts to try to understand exactly what that means. 
the best summary that I have come across is this definition found in the Baptist Catechism that's on your outline. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. My understanding is that's a good summary of what it means to be made in the image of God. We get this emphasis on knowledge, righteousness, and holiness actually from two New Testament passages that speak of the image or likeness of God. Colossians 3.10 speaks to Christians about putting on the new self and says this, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So here we see true knowledge being tied into the image of the creator. Ephesians 4.24 speaks to Christians and says, put on the new self, and this new self is tied as as being in Christ, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God or in the image of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So here, that verse ties righteousness and holiness to the likeness or image of God. So think about those three things for a minute. The, the knowledge that Adam and Eve had while they were without sin, before sin, they were able to understand. That means they were able to understand God's revelation of himself in the world. A world they had only been in for a matter of hours. For example, they understood and spoke a language. Adam was able to name and classify the animals. There was an immediate understanding of marriage when Eve was presented to Adam. They had no prior connection with any of those things. They just knew it. They just knew it. It was the knowledge that they had of being made in the image of God. As to righteousness, Adam and Eve were created in a condition of innocence, of uprightness, you could say. There was not sin there. As to holiness, holiness means to be set apart. So it means that while without sin, again, before the fall, they were wholly consecrated and set apart to God. Set apart to God. Man also has a fundamental urge, God-given urge, because he's made in the image of God, to take dominion. This is the idea of making things flourish to the glory of God. My favorite definition of taking dominion. Make all things flourish to the glory of God. The evidence of man taking dominion is all around us all the time. Buildings, roads, vehicles of all sorts, maps, air conditioning, heating systems, sound systems, musical instruments, computers, telephones, electricity, plumbing, music, art, books. I mean, the list is virtually endless of all the things in the earth that are here because man was created in the image of God to take dominion over the earth. However, when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was largely lost. 
What happens is, from set of knowledge, there is ignorance. Instead of righteousness, there is guilt for sin. Instead of holiness being set apart to God, slaves to sin instead. But there are still remnants of the image of God. We still have the ability to reason and think deeply about things. We have a soul, so therefore every person, even those who claim to be atheist, every person is inclined to worship something. We usually get it wrong. But there's an inclination to worship something. That's a remnant of the image of God. We have a conscience. So there are still remnants of the image of God that are there. Praise God for that. And man still has creativity in taking dominion. Apart from Christ, though, oftentimes dominion is going to be taken for evil purposes instead of godly purposes. Now, it's in Christ that the image of God is renewed in man. In Christ, we come to the knowledge of the truth once more. In Christ, righteousness, our, our guilt is forgiven in Christ, and we are made righteous in Christ. Holiness, being set apart to God. One of the things that, that Christians are called throughout the scriptures, I mean, the New Testament in particular, is the saints. We are saints, which means set apart ones, holy ones. That's, being, that's the image of God being renewed in Christ. So, that image is renewed in man, and that's what those passages in Colossians and Ephesians are talking about as well. But with the image of God being badly damaged in the fall, it is still accurate to say that man, male and female, is made in the image of God. That is still right to say. So man, and when I say man, I mean male and female, continues to stand as the highest point of God's created order. It's in Genesis 2 that we are given more detail about the creation of Adam and Eve, and Paul refers to this over in 1 Timothy 2. But let me look at Genesis 2, 18 to 22. Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called a living creature that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not, a, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that point, at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So this verse makes clear our next point, which is God in his wisdom purposely created Adam first and then created Eve as the perfect complement. We saw in Genesis 26, 126, that by, by, by a divine counsel of the triune God, that preceded the creation of man. So the way that God created Adam and Eve was a result of the wise plan of the triune God. 
we should not read these verses in Genesis 2 as if the creation of Eve was an afterthought. That's not true at all. God's not saying, whoops, I didn't create a helper suitable for Adam. Adam, and check out the animal, see if you can find one. That's not what's going on there at all. Because God purposed it this way from all eternity. The reference to the animals, really, that Adam named and classified is another way to show that man, male and female, is far superior to any other part of God's creation, no matter what it is. There are two things I want to mention about this account of how Eve was created. The first is summed up well by this quote on your outline by H.C. Leupold. He says, the true dignity of womankind is guaranteed. Woman is not of inferior substance. The truest of kinship with man is also established. She is of his bone and flesh. So the priority of man as male and female continues to be established. The woman is made of the same substance as the man. So there is an equality there. There is bone of my bones and flesh of flesh. It's the same. And as you may have heard before, the bone was not taken from man's head or from his foot but from his side, so she is neither superior nor inferior to man, but exactly on the same level. The second thing we need to take note of is that Adam was made first and then Eve. God could easily have made them both at the same time. That's apparently what he did with the animals, with the birds, with the fish, and so forth. You get no indication that this happened in any other aspect of God's creation except man and woman. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points out that it's significant that God purposely created Adam before Eve. That speaks, he says, to the ordering of authority in the church. As we'll see once we get to 1 Timothy 3, the role of elder slash pastor is to be filled by a man who is spiritually qualified for that role. Paul makes it clear that those things are not something that's based on cultural bias in any way. It's something based on God's divine revelation in the word of God. And he goes all the way back to Genesis. So men and women are equal, equal as being made human beings in the image of God. But God in his perfect wisdom has given them different roles So let's look at our second main point. Adam and Eve fell from the state in which they were first created into sin and rebellion against God. God's creation of the world and of man as male and female are foundational truths that must be understood and believed. But we also need to consider how sin came into the world. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, God generously provided for Adam there in the Garden of Eden but also gave a very important prohibition. Here's what he says, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So he could eat freely 
freely from any tree in the garden. This is generous. But he must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he eats from that tree, he will die. Death would include both spiritual death and physical death. These instructions were given to Adam before Eve was created, so it was his responsibility to communicate them to her. On Genesis 3, 1 to 7, we see what happened next. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. <coughs> For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves lowen coverings. So from these verses, we see our next point, which is Satan appeared as a serpent and enticed Eve, who enticed Adam to distrust God and sin against him. So after the wonderful beauty and contentment and fulfillment that we see in the Garden of Eden, everything changes when sin enters. A lot of people think that they probably weren't in the, they probably weren't in the Garden much more than 24 hours for all this happened. We don't know that for sure. That's speculation, but... So what happens when sin comes in? Multiple things. First, sin brings shame. They were immediately ashamed of their nakedness. Second, there was mistrust. They mistrusted each other. They mistrusted God, most of all. Third, they ran away from their creator instead of going to him for help. Fourth, their great intellect was affected. They actually foolishly think now they can hide from God. These are the people who were given knowledge. Like we just mentioned a few examples like no one has ever had before. And now they think they can hide from God. As we've said before, sin makes you stupid. Sin always makes you stupid. That they go together. Fifth, they did not accept their guilt, but tried to explain it away. So didn't accept responsibility. Sixth, in very unloving ways, they tried to place the blame on others. And seventh, Adam tried to say that really God was to blame for all this because of that woman you gave me. <laughs> There is just nothing good that comes from sin. Nothing. And it was not her fault. Adam was fully aware of the right thing to do. As we said, he's the one who was specifically God told. And he sinned in direct rebellion to God. It was not her fault. 
Nobody was willing to take responsibility, like I said. The basis of sin was rebellion toward God. It was mistrust of what God had told them. It was also deciding that they could decide for themselves what was harmful or beneficial for them. We'll be the ones to decide. So we see immediate consequences, and we see those consequences from sin have multiplied to the nth degree since then. We also see how the fact that Adam was, Adam was given authority had drastic effects on the whole world. Adam's name means mankind. All that he did as the first man, he did as the representative for all mankind. So when Adam sinned, that meant that all human beings who would ever be born after him were guilty of this original sin. Here's how we describe it in our church's confession of faith. This is on your outline. As a consequence, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all his posterity. They are under condemnation and inherit a nature corrupt and wholly opposed to God and his law, from which proceed all actual transgressions. So yes, we're guilty of Adam's sin because Adam is our representative. But because of Adam's headship over the human race, all mankind is born into a state of sin and misery. We are all naturally inclined towards sin from birth. And because of that, we commit many, 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 many actual sins ourselves. So you can't say, man, what for Adam? I'd be fine. No. No, you wouldn't. I wouldn't either. This is a terrible, just a depressing reality. But it's a reality the Bible requires us to come to grips with. It is much worse to look around and assume that everyone is basically good. Because then you're either going to be proud or you're going to have to make excuses, but it ends up being deception. There's one more point that Paul refers to from these verses in 1 Timothy 2, uh, from these verses in, in Genesis that he refers, refers to in 1 Timothy 2. As he addresses the issue of authority in the church, he makes this statement, and this is over in, back in 1 Timothy 2. Verse 14, Um, by the way, verse 13 is where he mentions Adam was first created and then Eve. Verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. It is sometimes assumed that this means that women are more gullible and not as smart as men. That's not what it means. I know it it may look that way, and people may come to that conclusion, but that's not what it means. And it's not true. Over the years, not a lot of recent years, but over the years I've been in lots of different classes, classrooms, settings. Anytime I was in a classroom setting that had girls, women, depending on how old I was in the class, they were always the smartest ones in the class. And if the teacher ever decided he was going to grade on a curve, it was always a girl that messed it up. 
It was always a girl that would end up getting 100% and mess up the curve of everybody else. You guys probably had that same experience. <laughs> and we know that one of the big things Paul was dealing with in the church in Ephesus was false teachers. They were probably all men. In fact, when you think about all the heresies that have come about in the religious world, they were invariably started by men. So, Paul is not trying to say that the women are that that a woman is more easily deceived than a man because of what happened with Eve. I think he has something else in mind. We can sum it up with this final point. Eve's sin was an attempt by Satan to overthrow the structure of authority God had established and throw God's created order into chaos. Satan was looking for chaos. And you get chaos when you uphold and uproot authority. As we noted earlier, Paul seems to have concern with the false teachers who seem to be encouraging people to throw off authority and pursue whatever course they wanted to, regardless of the consequences. In many ways, that doesn't sound a whole lot different than today. God created Adam first. That spoke to his authority over Eve as his wife. But Paul also makes the point here that spiritually qualified men were to be the elders, pastors, and the church. So through Paul, God is making it clear that the order of creation is to be reflected in the body of Christ and the church. Eve's sin was not that she was naive. It was the willing desire, the willful desire to throw off the creation order and act independently of God and do what she thought was best for her. She trusted Satan instead of God and was deceived such that she believed her eyes would be open and she would be like God. Adam obviously thought seems to think the same thing, but that's that she thought it was going to change it was going to turn everything around. The irony is when you think about it. God had already given Adam and Eve as his helpmeet the authority to take dominion over all creation. That's a lot of authority to be in charge of everything. Well, by submitting to Satan's temptation, both Adam and Eve were now allowing Satan to rule over them. What the desire was to get out from under authority, put them under an evil authority. In other words, chaos. Now, we should note that Adam was beside Eve, literally, the way, this, the, way the verses read. It seems that Adam was standing beside Eve when Satan tempted her, and he said nothing. And he was also fully willing to join in the rebellion. So as the head, Adam caused all mankind to fall into a state of sin and misery because of his sin. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God in his grace 
would send one into the world who would be the second and better Adam. And this goes back again to the importance of man as male and female. As Vaughn Roberts said, the distinction between male and female is fundamental in contributing to the picture of the gospel. In other words, you start throwing off male and females being unimportant, you're attacking the gospel as well. They're connected. There's a tie there. In the man Adam, all sinned. But in the man Jesus Christ, we have one mediator between God and man. The man who is fully God, fully man, who gave himself as a ransom for sinful men and sinful women. That's our hope. That's the good news. And it's very much connected to God's good and wise created order that we see all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. There are so many things that hard for us to understand and get a grasp on. I understand that. I know I'm continuing to study and try to understand things more clearly. But I want to thank you for your word to kind of guide us, to help us to think through things that are difficult. And especially when we think about things that are going on in our culture, I mean, it's your word that really is there to give us clarity, to help us get a, a firm footing on exactly what is true, what is not, and so forth. So I just want to thank you for your word. And I ask that as we continue to look at these things, that you would continue to grant us insight into what you mean by these things and how they apply to us. Lord, I want to thank you that you made us in your image. I want to thank you that you made us male and you made us female. I am so grateful for that. Thank you that you made us male and female, and you did that on purpose. Thank you for your good and wise plan. Lord, help us as men and as women to see that the most important part of our life is to glorify you in whatever we do and how we live and what we prioritize, whatever it might be. Just help us to see that whatever we do, our most important calling in life is to glorify you. And thank you for creating us and giving us the, uh, working in our hearts like you do. I want to thank you so much for what Jesus Christ has done on our, on our behalf. If we were left to just what Adam accomplished for us, hell is all we have to look forward to. There would be no other option. But I want to thank you so much for the second Adam. I thank you so much for Jesus Christ as the mediator between God and man. Thank you so much for the ransom he paid for us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, that's your only hope. I would invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I know that I have not measured up. I have that same desire to want to live apart from what I know is right and do what my own gut tells me I should do. I know I have sin in my heart. But I want to thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, and we can talk later about it, or those who are watching uh, online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.